Thursday, 1942, was dismal and depressing. Not because of inclement weather, but because of the tension in Manila. Days earlier, the Manila skyline had glowed red with explosions, smoke, and fire, and military vehicles and personnel choked the streets in their hasty exit. Today, though, the city was silent, still, empty. Newspapers had advised residents to stay indoors. Adhering to that advice, two American girls in their early 20s sat in their hotel room, waiting. One of the girls was Frances Long, a sparkling 21-year-old with dark curls, bright eyes, and a captivating, slightly saucy smile. But of course, there wasn't much to smile about on this day. Rather, she would have been consumed with worry about what could happen. Sometimes Frances or her roommate Jessie Mann would stand and pace mindlessly toward the window, looking down onto Dewey Boulevard, Manila's main street. Around 8 p.m., Jessie screamed. Frances rushed to join her at the window. Here they are. The dreaded hour is finally here, Frances said as she watched a long line of headlights coming out of the darkness down Dewey Boulevard toward them. The girls' hearts beat quickly, their breathing fast in fear and anticipation, but they couldn't turn away. Soon the rumbling of motorcycles cut through the silence, announcing the arrival of Japanese troops in Manila. Japanese military vehicles and soldiers quickly filled the city, posting guards at hotels, clubs, and apartment houses. Stay in your room, don't leave the building, only come down for meals, the hotel manager told Francis and Jesse. So that's what they did. For three days, they hid in their hotel room, among the radios, clothing, movie cameras, cases of whiskey and coke, and more that departing American servicemen had given to Francis and Jesse a few days before. For three days, the women didn't know what was happening outside. Their only news came from what they saw and heard when they went to the hotel's dining room for meals. Most of the employees have fled, Francis heard a hotel guest tell a friend. The guest companion responded, Yes, and the hotel says they have only enough food to last 10 days. After that, it's up to the Japs to feed us. On the third day, the hotel manager knocked on Francis's hotel room door. Get ready, a Japanese general is coming to inspect the hotel and its occupants. The girls complied. Soon they sat straightly and stiffly in chairs facing their open hotel room door. They heard shuffling down the hallway. Then the manager walked down the hall, straight-faced and calm. Behind him was a Japanese general, with a three-days beard, a dirty uniform, and a toothpick in his mouth. The girls sat petrified, eyes wide, breathing fast as the Japanese general approached them. He entered their room, looking around at the piles of things the girls had inherited from the American servicemen. Satisfied by whatever he saw, he turned and left the room, chuckling as he shuffled by them and saying, <laughs> Yankee girls? This is Left Behind. Welcome to Left Behind, a podcast about the people left behind when the U.S. surrendered the Philippines in the early days of World War II. I'm Anastasia Harmon, and I tell you the stories of World War II servicemen and women, civilians, guerrillas, and others captured by Japanese forces in the Philippines. 
My great-grandfather, Al-Masam, was one of those POWs, and his memoir inspired me to tell these stories. I'm quite excited about this week's episode because it focuses on a woman. Now, I love my POWs and telling you their stories, but there's something special about telling a woman's story, just a different perspective and experience than what we typically see in war histories. I discovered Miss Frances Long by accident. She's not mentioned in my great-grandfather's memoir. He likely never knew she existed. He did, however, know her fiancé, Alan Manning. And he mentioned Manning in his memoir. When I was researching Manning's life, I learned he had a fiancé named Frances Long, and then I discovered her remarkable life. Frances was in Manila when the U.S. military left the city, leaving it open for Japanese occupation. She was alone, practically penniless, and among the first to be left behind as World War II heated up. So let's jump in. Frances Long was born on September 25, 1920 in Shanghai, China. She was one of two children born to U.S. citizens Edwin Long and Edith Hunter. I spend time researching the family histories of all the people I highlight on Left Behind, but I usually don't include many of those details in my episodes. However, I can't resist including some of Frances's family history because it's very unique for the time period. Frances's father, Edwin Long, was an American businessman living in Shanghai. Edwin had been born in Portland, Oregon in 1884. His father was named Pong Long and was born in China in the 1850s. Pong immigrated to the U.S. in the 1860s, settling in San Francisco. In May 1877, Pong married Selina Elliott, a San Francisco resident and immigrant from England. This marriage pairing of a white woman and Chinese man was unusual for the time, and it made headlines outside of San Francisco. Here's one of those news briefs under the headline, Marrying a Chinaman, from a city 40 miles north of San Francisco. A marriage license was issued today to Pong Long, a young Chinese merchant, the intended bride being Miss Selena Elliott, a good-looking young blonde. Her father, who formerly was a respectable expressman in the city, now resides in San Jose. Miss Elliot is reported to be a reputable young lady, about 24 years of age, and has been for some time the teacher of a private Chinese school, and on visiting terms with a better class of Chinese merchants. Things were a lot different in the 1870s. Pong and Selena Long, who are Francis's grandparents, moved to Portland, Oregon, where Pong worked as either a merchant or a laborer. It's a little difficult to tell from the records exactly what he was doing. Five of the couple's six children, including Francis's father, Edward Long, were born in Portland. The Long family lived in China during the 1890s, so that would have been during Edwin's late childhood and early teen years. Edwin eventually went to England for school, where he graduated from Cambridge University in 1916 with a law degree. While in England, he married Edith Hunter. The newlyweds lived in Hong Kong for a while in the late 1910s while Edwin worked for the Standard Oil Company. In 1919, they moved to Shanghai, where Edwin intended to establish a textile mill. Their daughter, Frances Long, was born there in September 1920. So, Frances herself was an American citizen, born abroad, who was three-quarters English and one-quarter Chinese, which I think is pretty cool. I don't know how long Frances Long's family remained in Shanghai, but I do know that they traveled the world and that they lived in California off and on throughout the 1920s. 
1931, Frances and her family again moved to Shanghai, where her father became the executive secretary for the U.S. consulate there. So he was a diplomat. Remember that point, because it becomes important. Frances Long attended the American school in Shanghai, where she was schoolmates with a girl named Jessie, who would later be Frances's roommate in Manila. After high school, Frances attended finishing school in England. By 1940, Frances was back in Shanghai at the same time that the American 4th Marine Regiment was stationed there. Among those Marines was a handsome young first lieutenant named Alan Manning. Alan Manning was an athletic man with blonde hair. He looks like he could have been the model for Barbie's boyfriend, Ken. Alan Manning was a very attractive man, and I've got some pictures of him on my website. The link is in the show description. Alan was from Massachusetts, and his family seems to have been well off financially. He attended a prep school and then Harvard in the late 1930s. At Harvard, he participated in soccer, wrestling, baseball, crew, and swimming. He majored in English and planned on going into advertising, at least according to the Harvard yearbook. He graduated from Harvard in 1939, and despite those stated career intentions, Alan was in the Marines less than a year later, in April 1940. And soon he was stationed in Shanghai, where he met and fell in love with Francis Long. They celebrated their engagement at a Marine cocktail party in Shanghai's American Club in mid-November 1941. You can find a picture from that party on my website. Two weeks later, the couple sailed for the Philippines on board the USS President Harrison. Lieutenant Manning was being transferred with the rest of the 4th Marines to the Philippines in anticipation of hostilities with Japan. You may recall that Major Frank Pizek, who I talked about in episode one, was a member of the 4th Marines, as was Louis Sontag, who I spotlighted in episode five. As Lieutenant Manning's fiance, Francis was allowed to sail with him to the Philippines. I believe she was intending to return to the United States, so the Philippine Islands was a pit stop, so to speak, for her. She said goodbye to Alan at a Longapo Navy Yard, and then the ship took her and the other officers' wives to Manila, about 70 miles or 110 kilometers east of Alongapo. She settled into a hotel, and Alan visited her a few days later on Sunday, December 7, 1941. The next day, the world changed. Frances Long slept in on Monday, December 8th, awakening in her hotel room to a bright, sunny morning. She decided that today it was time to explore Manila. Emerging from her room, she went down to breakfast, but found the hotel oddly empty, except for a few Filipino workers rushing around and not paying attention to her. Undaunted, she stepped outside the hotel and took a walk along Manila's famed waterfront, which was lined with green lawns. Small groups of American soldiers surrounded anti-aircraft guns on those manicured lawns as Frances strolled down Dewey Boulevard, Manila Bay on one side of her and fine homes on the other. But the soldiers and guns were a normal sight in Manila, so she didn't pay much attention. Then, from overhead, she heard the drone of airplanes. Looking skyward, she shielded her eyes and saw nine planes in perfect formation, and then a loud bang. Frances whipped around and saw smoke from an anti-aircraft gun then she was grabbed by the arm and thrown into a ditch. Stupid, silly girl, yelled an American soldier who now sat on her stomach, preventing her from rising. Just like a woman to walk vaguely along the road while war's going on. What? What war? Francis cried in response, completely confused. 
Well, what do you think? War's been declared on Japan, been all over the papers, damn women and their plagued empty heads. The planes disappeared and the anti-aircraft guns ceased. The soldier removed himself from Frances and she got on her feet. He thrust a piece of shrapnel in her face. Here, put this in front of your mirror to remind yourself there's a war going on. Now, lest you think I'm being sexist in this dialogue, just know I created it from Francis's own written account and using her descriptions of this encounter, so it's not me being harsh about women. Francis soon discovered that she was marooned in Manila. No U.S. ships could enter or leave Manila Bay, so Francis had no way of leaving the war-torn islands. Further, she was cut off from communication with Shanghai, where both her family and her money was located and she'd heard that Alangapo Navy Yard, where her fiancé, Lieutenant Alan Manning, was stationed, and all the servicemen there had been wiped out. They hadn't, but war rumors and enemy propaganda run rampant. So Francis was alone, friendless, moneyless, stranded in a strange country that was under constant attack by enemy forces. But Francis was intrepid. She needed a job so she set out two days later on December 10th to find one. Figuring a clerical job with the U.S. military would be easiest and safest to find, she pounded the Manila streets for three days until hired by Navy intelligence. Each afternoon from 1 to 6 p.m., she filed letters and telegrams. It was tedious, boring work, but it paid enough for her to live and eat. The same day that Francis found a job, President Franklin D. Roosevelt addressed the nation during one of his famous fireside chats. There is no such thing as impregnable defense against powerful aggressors who sneak up in the dark and strike without warning. We have learned that our ocean-girt hemisphere is not immune from severe attack, that we cannot measure our safety in terms of miles on any map anymore. We may acknowledge that our enemies have performed a brilliant feat of deception, perfectly timed and executed with great skill. It was a thoroughly dishonorable deed, but we must face the fact that modern warfare as conducted in the Nazi manner is a dirty business. We don't like it. We didn't want to get in it, but we are in it, and we're going to fight it with everything we've got. In true American fashion, the country may have had a nasty blow, but they certainly weren't going to sit by and take it. Optimism and patriotism was high, both at home and in the war-torn areas. And there was every confidence that the U.S. would claim victory in the end. Frances felt this confidence herself, and she soon found she wasn't entirely alone in Manila. Other Americans were stranded in Manila as well. As she walked along the Manila streets one day, she ran into Jesse Mann, a curly-haired 20-year-old who Francis knew at school in Shanghai and who was newly married to Ralph Mann, also in the 4th Marines with Lieutenant Alan Manning. Francis and Jesse became roommates and lived in a hotel room with heavy blackout curtains on the windows to hide lights during the night and make Manila less of a target for Japanese aircraft. For the first several days, the air raids came only at night. Air raid sirens wailing throughout Manila woke Jesse and Francis from sleep, and they rushed from their hotel room to a nearby bomb shelter. 
And then they sat, waiting, sometimes for hours, until someone called, all clear. Then they trudge back to their rooms, only to sometimes repeat the performance later that night. I'm not going, a groggy Jesse said after countless nights of air raid evacuations. A sleepy Francis responded, if the bombs met for us, it's going to get us no matter where we are. And both girls rolled over, attempting to get back to sleep. But their cavalier attitude toward bombing raids while sleeping didn't necessarily carry into the daylight. Francis was out in the city with some friends when Japanese planes began bombing the Manila port one day for three hours. The group of friends sheltered in a nearby building. Every time a bomb dropped, the building shook so I thought it would fall on our heads. After waiting until we thought it was all clear, we started to walk to the hotel. We got halfway when the planes came over and dropped bombs all around us. For some unreasonable reason, we ran and hid in the bushes for half an hour. As the days went on, news and rumors of Japan's assault flooded into Manila. Japanese infantry began landing in northern Luzon on December 22nd and advanced quickly southward, capturing airstrips and pushing back U.S. and Filipino forces. That same day, Japanese infantry also landed in southern Luzon with intention of pushing north to Manila. And then news came that the U.S. military was abandoning Manila, with most military personnel withdrawing to the Bataan Peninsula and some going to Corregidor Island in Manila Bay. Francis and the other clerical workers at Naval Intelligence were given their last paychecks and dismissed. I was stunned. It never occurred to me that the Japs would get as far as Manila. The evacuating servicemen gave Francis, Jesse, and other civilians their excess food, cases of coke and liquor, cigarettes, radios, movie cameras, and more. Francis and Jesse stacked all of their newfound loot in their hotel room. On December 30th and 31st, Francis and Jesse watched the last of the U.S. military leave Manila. The midnight sky bright red from explosions and fires of gas reserves, equipment, military bases, and other important targets the U.S. didn't want falling into Japanese hands. And then, Francis was alone. Sure, Jesse and a few other friends were with her, but she was stranded with no permanent residence and no income in a foreign city about to be occupied by enemy forces. Let's stop for a moment and just try to imagine that situation. I know I would feel scared and abandoned. In many ways, it's hard to imagine the dread of waiting for an occupation army to arrive. Think of all the what ifs you might ask yourself, especially as a woman. Just the anxiety at the truly unknown. I know I would feel helpless and terrified of an occupation army and what they might do to me. And remember also that Frances had been living in Shanghai for a number of years, so she had seen the Japanese as an enemy for a long time, since the Japanese had been invading China since the early 1930s, and that invasion intensified in 1937. So Frances had lived in a country already at war with Japan. Well, Frances and Jesse remained at their hotel, staying indoors as much as possible, they watched the Japanese army move into Manila on January 1st, and then encountered their first Japanese military figure a couple days later when he inspected their hotel rooms. Yankee girls, he had chuckled on his way out. Yankee girls indeed, but what would become of them in an enemy-occupied, war-torn foreign city? The answer came three days later. 
Rumor came that we must pack one suitcase and be ready to leave the hotel within 24 hours. We grabbed clothes frantically and sat all day. Nothing happened. The next day, an order came to be ready in a half an hour with one suitcase. We rushed through clothes closets and grabbed all we could lay our hands on. I stuffed in a couple pairs of slacks, mini towels, and a mosquito net. Most of my clothes I left in the closet as there was no room or time. Japanese soldiers searched her luggage and then ordered her downstairs and out of the hotel with a massive and growing group of some 200 enemy alien citizens waiting for buses to who knows where. In about an hour, I was stuffed into the bus. We were driven to Santo Tomas University. It looked nice and big from the road with clean lawns all around. We were so cramped in the bus while the Japs discussed for half an hour what to do with us that when we tumbled out, our legs were numb. Americans lined up on one side, British on the other. Thus, Francis Long had arrived with hundreds of American, British, and other enemy alien citizens at Manila's University of Santo Tomas. The university made an ideal camp because a wall surrounded the entire 48-acre complex. The school became the Santo Tomas Civilian Internment Camp. This is the same camp where the four U.S. sailors hid for a year as U.S. citizens, which I covered in episodes 8 and 9. Men were assigned to one of the main school building's wings, women to another. Francis and Jesse were assigned sleeping quarters in classroom 9 with 33 other women. I use the term sleeping quarters quite loosely because there were no beds, no blankets, really no accommodations for the thousands of internees who now called the former university home. The first night was a nightmare. Jesse and I scouted, begged, and finally got a small, broken, horribly narrow bed with no mattress or bedclothes. The only way we could use it was to have her head at one end and my head at the other. Many of the women, not having anything, slept on the concrete floor without mosquito nets and were terribly bitten. Over the next weeks and months, the university building became more crowded as internees continued to arrive. Internees ran the career and socioeconomic gamut, from businessmen to bankers, prostitutes to plantation owners. Some were retired U.S. soldiers who came to the Philippines during the 1890s Spanish-American War. Others were captured Army and Navy female nurses. Wealthy internees were able to buy materials from Filipino vendors and build shanties on the university grounds. And the camp became something of a small city, with its own government and economic system. The internees established a hospital at camp and, especially important, a sanitation committee. When I first arrived, there were no showers and no baths, and only three wash basins for 470 women on the second floor. Sometimes the women hosed each other down with water. Later, the sanitation committee installed showers, but there were usually six women under each shower at once. For the most part, the Japanese let Santo Tomas internees fend for and govern themselves. The captors provided little food or supplies, so internees took to purchasing items from non-interned Filipinos and to growing their own food. Still, a class system developed within camp. Those who had money could buy food and eat. Destitute internees often went without, especially as supplies decreased and prices rose in camp. Internees with money could buy materials to build bamboo and palm frond shanties. They became a sort of camp aristocracy. 
The internees were segregated by gender, and the Japanese tried to ban affectionate and other relations between men and women. Their efforts were met with varying degrees of success. After all, if you had a private shanty. The most unpopular Japanese discipline group was known as the Morality Squad, which was organized because the Japanese were shocked to see the internees holding hands and showing signs of affection, even if they were married. So the Morality Squad went around telling people not to hold hands or sit close together. Just like the chaperones at a junior high dance. I worked for the discipline committee for two months, typing, taking dictation, and filing. I later became a messenger. This meant sitting outside the central office waiting to deliver messages. Messengers wore bands with little boy run swiftly written on them in Japanese so they could go anywhere in camp. The internees received information about the war, both in the Philippines and elsewhere in the world, through rumor, newspapers, and their own eyes. They could see Japanese aircraft concentrating their bombing over the Bataan Peninsula where the majority of U.S. and Filipino forces were gathered. In early April 1942, after about three months in camp, Francis learned that the U.S. had surrendered Bataan. The horror, depression, and low morale was terrible to see. But even worse was the fall of the island fortress Corregidor. As the days crept by and the sound of guns on Corregidor grew less and less, we knew Corregidor was crumbling. Imagine us sitting in a concentration camp not 30 miles away. I felt I would become insane at the picture of all the horrible things happening with the fall of Corregidor. Frances didn't know, but her fiancé Alan Manning was on Corregidor, part of the first line of beach defenses there. One day in early June 1942, as Frances was heading to dinner with Jesse, a messenger approached her. The Commandant wants to see you, Miss Long. See me? The Japanese commander wants to see me? Yes, miss. So nervous she could barely climb the steps, Frances made her way to the commandant's office. He gestured for her to enter and asked, Miss Long, your family resides in Shanghai, I believe. Would you like to return there? Yes, absolutely. Very well. You will leave Santo Tomas for Shanghai early tomorrow morning. Tomorrow? How did this happen? Why me? Can, what can I take with me? And, and how, how will I get there? If you tell anyone about your departure, you will be shobatsu, punished. Can I retrieve all my luggage I left in Manila? That is not necessary. But yes, the only clothing I have are these that I borrowed from other internees. I have nothing else. The commandant looked her over and relented. A Japanese guard escorted her to a car. As they drove out of Santo Tomas, Jesse Mann and Francis's other friends stared, fearing she'd somehow incurred a horrible punishment. When Francis returned to Santo Tomas with several bags of luggage, hundreds of camp internees lined the halls as she walked to her room, yelling out questions. At the risk of punishment, I told a friend I was leaving, for I saw that it was useless to try and keep the secret. As I packed, people from Shanghai crowded into the room, begging me to take messages. Most of them had to be verbal, as the Japs told me I could not take anything connected with camp. Early the next morning, Francis and one other internee, an Associated Press correspondent named Jennifer White, boarded a bus and were driven to Pier 7 in Manila. A small Red Cross ship was docked there, and the two women boarded along with 11 other civilian evacuees. They sailed to southern Formosa, present-day Taiwan, 
and then took an overnight train to present-day Taipei. We stayed at a hotel for two days where we were confined to our rooms, except for meals, which we ate in the dining room behind a screen, because the hotel didn't want its Japanese customers antagonized by the presence of white people. Even so, it caused a stir among the guests and waiters. They began peeping through the screens at us. On the third day, Francis and the other evacuees were driven to an airfield and boarded an airplane. The plane's windows were covered, so they couldn't look out at first, but... Once we were clear of the Formosa coast, we could look out. The China coast was a magnificent sight. It was wonderful in Shanghai to see my folks. And just like that, Francis's time as a civilian prisoner of war was over. She was part of a prisoner exchange chosen because of her father's position as a diplomat. He would later testify before a U.S. Senate War Claims Commission that My daughter was on her way back to America and she was caught in Manila and was interned for five months. You may have seen her story in Life magazine, but we had diplomatic status and I prevailed upon the Japanese to send Francis back with us. Within a couple weeks, Francis sailed from Shanghai with her father and mother on board the ship Conte Verde. They changed ships in present-day Mozambique on the eastern coast of Africa. Their new ship left Mozambique on July 28th and arrived at the port of New York on August 25th, 1942. En route to New York, she wrote about her experiences at Santo Tomas, which appeared in the September 1942 issue of Life magazine. But before we leave the Philippines too far behind us, let's check in on Francis's fiancé, Alan Manning. Lieutenant Manning was on Corregidor when the island fortress fell to Japanese forces in early May 1942. He was sent to Cabanatuan POW camp, where he became somewhat of a star, as my great-grandfather Al Masam recorded in his memoir. Over the months, we gradually found talent, and occasionally on Saturday, we held an open-air variety show, weather permitting. The stage was constructed from a few rough planks. Due to an exceptional concession on the part of the Japanese camp authorities, the luxury of a couple of electric lights for our show was authorized for a time. Lieutenant Manning, U.S. Marine Corps, was among the leading and versatile actors. You should have seen our American ingenuity at its peak when employed in rounding up and fashioning costumes. In portraying a woman, corn tassels made an excellent substitute for imitation hair. Coconut shells were also useful for portraying women, or so Alma explained. After spending nearly two and a half years at Cabanatuan, Lieutenant Manning was sent to Manila, where he boarded the ship Arisan Maru with nearly 1,800 other American POWs, including B-17 bomber pilot Don Robbins, who I profiled in episode four. The Arisan Maru had no markings to indicate the cargo it held. The American submarine USS Shark torpedoed the Arisan Maru around 5 p.m. on October 24, 1944, in the South China Sea. Most of the POWs escaped the ship's holds and swam to other ships in the convoy, only to be beaten away by Japanese sailors with poles. Only nine of the 1,782 POWs survived. 27-year-old Lieutenant Alan Manning did not survive. He is considered missing in action, presumed dead, and his name appears on the tablets of the missing at the Manila American Cemetery. In 1943, Frances wrote a book about her internment experiences called Half a World Away. She was also a feature writer for the Associated Press and did a little modeling. 
She married Charles Scott in 1946, shortly after the war ended. Charles worked for Standard Oil, and they spent the first 10 years of their marriage traveling to and living in various places around the world. She was indeed a world traveler, almost her whole life. In 1955, the couple and their two children settled in Ridgefield, Connecticut, where she was involved with several civic organizations, clubs, and more. Frances died December 19, 2002, in Reading, Connecticut. She was 84 years old and survived by a daughter and two grandchildren. A quiet end to the remarkable life of a truly amazing woman. Now back in 1941, when the Japanese were occupying Manila and rounding up Francis and the other enemy alien civilians, American military forces on Bataan were trying to hold back a Japanese advance. And for the 26th Cavalry, holding back that advance included an old-school, horse-mounted charge, the last one in U.S. history, to be exact. More on that next week. This is Left Behind. For listening, you can find pictures, maps, and sources about Frances and her fiancé, Ellen Manning's stories on my website. The link is in the show description. If you'd like to know more about Frances's wartime experience, I suggest her book, Half a World Away. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe so you'll get notifications when new episodes drop. Left Behind is researched, written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, Anastasia Harmon. Voiceover work by Brooke Davis, Tyler Harmon, and Paul Sutherland. Dramatizations are based on historical research, although some creative liberty is taken. I'll be back next week with that last cavalry charge in U.S. history. (laughs) 